Sex Communication, a podcast of explicit audio and frank conversation. How do we talk about sex? How do we communicate during sex? Well, if you're here now, then you're going to find out. My name is Brianne McGuire, and each week I share an uncensored peek into the things we don't discuss. Sex. 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 I can't say the word sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 115. Today is the first of a series of episodes I'm doing in collaboration with the Black Sex Worker Collective to promote their upcoming fundraiser next month. This is but one of the many ways the Sex Communication Podcast and Graphic Paint are offering support to the Black community and sex workers everywhere. I encourage you to do the same. If you're a listener of this show, you know that the goal is to destroy the stigmatization around sex through honest exploration of its reality. Sex work is necessary, useful, and deserves as much discussion, respect, and exploration as any other topic. To tell you a bit more about the collective, their goal is to create a safe space where the unique experiences, needs, and voices of black sex workers are both validated and responded to with appropriate needs-based resources. The organization was founded by Akinos, a New York-raised black sex worker now living in Berlin. On July 22nd, the collective will host a 22-hour event called Who's Allowed to Make Money? Workers in Solidarity. It is both a celebration and grassroots fundraising campaign to support sex workers and other freelance artists directly impacted by current circumstances, who are all too often Black and people of color. This event seeks to shift public perception of the definition of work, thereby valuing the contributions of what sex workers do for their community and addressing the economic burden of current legislation. Groups and artists from Australia, Canada, the U.S., and Europe will unite to host nonstop edutainment with workshops, symposiums, DJs, burlesque, and a variety of showcases along with much more. In today's episode, I speak with Dan of Kinky and Wonderland, who will be hosting an online Introduction to Bondage class during the July 22nd event. Dan is also based in Berlin, and we discuss his experiences with sex-based work, kink, discrimination, and activism. Here we go. So, hi Dan, how are you? Hey Brian. No. (laughs) (laughs) Brianne. 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 Okay, well, like the worst start you can probably have. It's fine. It's very human. So can you uh, tell me a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Dan. I'm now uh, 36 years old, living in Berlin, Germany. I'm married with my husband now for three years married, and together we are now for 13 years. Um, I'm professional king coach, bondage trainer, and event manager majorly for the kinky and queer community, uh, which is kind of a really, really awesome crowd that we are having in Berlin. And that's also where kind of my friend's background and all these things are. So that's basically, I think, the the core community, what you have to think about me when, when I'm talking with you but i'm also connected with a lot of other people around me i have many straight friends um a a lot from the lesbian community and puppy community so this is like they're all kind of mixed together and stick together so uh how did you get connected with the black sex worker collective this was actually based on one event called the tea gesellschaft 
which is um, yeah basically a community event for, for, to bring different crowds together. And one of them was, um, yeah, Akua, she was coming. She was like, oh, wow, I'm already too late. And I was like, no, we, you just missed some of the shows. And then we started to talk like hours about the whole um, sex worker uh, topic. And we were f figuring out that we have a lot of similar problems. She's like seeing it all from the American perspective. In Germany, we also have some issues with the sex workers, uh, especially with the politi uh, politicians who want to change the laws. And yeah, this was where we started to talk for hours about. And so we kind of got connected. And yeah, she's now kind of uh, trying to bring together people from all around the world. And I just love this idea and the spirit. And so this is how I got to the black sex worker community. Um, to be honest, I don't have a lot of other points with uh, that community. I'm kind of white uh, male, so probably a little bit privileged in this context, um, but I'm strongly supporting uh, all the other orientations and all the people who are not that privileged. So I think it's important. And if I can do this with my work, it's even better. Right. And when you say she, you're talking about um, Aquinos? Yes. Yeah. Is it mostly, not even mostly, but like just overwhelmingly, predominantly white in Germany? I wouldn't call it white, but we definitely don't have that many black people in Germany. Berlin is very multiculti, um, but this, this is not the point for whole Germany, especially in the last few years. We had some immigration debates. This is not really something new. We had immigration debates like, I think, hundreds of years already before. So this is like very typical that people are immigrating to um, to Germany. It was like, I think, after the World War II, there we had a lot of immigrants who were helping us to build up Germany again. It's kind of like Germany always need immigrants, but also in Germany you have a very big, um, let's call them right orientation group. This was very quiet. The last maybe 100 years, yeah, well, not 100 years, but like after World War II, they were like kind of very quiet for, for a long time. Uh, just the last few years, they became louder and louder. So the right wing increased. Um, but yeah, we have, I, I wouldn't call it that we have really right wing problems, but we have an increasing right wing orientation. And this makes it more difficult for a lot of people. And it's very interesting because if you look at the scientific studies, it says you only have this right wing orientation problems in areas where you don't have a lot of um, immigrants. So it's, yeah. So what do you identify as, as being like the, the biggest populations that are facing marginalization? Does it, I mean, does discrimination come in Germany mostly based on orientation or like color of skin or gender identity? Like what are the most polarizing um, identifications in the population? Hmm. I, this is a really difficult question as I never talk, thought about it in a scientifically way or read anything about it. From my personal perspective, I once had problem. I got beaten up and got smashed to glasses in my face because I was gay. I know a lot of, especially teenagers who are at high school, who are with their family, who are in the countryside, friends in my environment, they experience a lot of discrimination against gay, against trans, against being queer, gender fluid or something like this. 
Um, this is a lot of experience. I have some friends which are um, not native Germans, so they are not having the right skin color. Um, I know people who, yeah, they really are scared kind of because of their skin color. They are not willing to go out or similar. Uh, but also, as I said, in my context, in my environment where I'm living, I never experienced this. But, well, as I said, I'm not... Uh, I'm not a person of color, so I can't really say that this is typical or not typical. I heard a lot. I heard a lot of problems, um, especially with Jewish people now also in Berlin. Um, there's also religious background. Um, so this is difficult. It's difficult for me to say who is like more or less discriminated. Um, at least for me, I can't see any problem except of and this is like a point where i experience it by myself personally um sex work thing um i'm not a sex worker in the field that i'm uh, i'm an, uh, i'm an expert but i work in the sex industry and i give bondage classes i give kinky events and all these things and from society I experience very often that these are things which will not be shown they are not normal they are not publicly uh, publicly acceptable mm -hmm. and i experienced that there's really a strong discrimination um especially in social media and all these environments yeah kind of being illegal being not able to show what kind of nice things you can offer or do or even <laughs> so I, i think that's that's really ridiculous And even if you make it in a youth-friendly way, so everything is covered, everything is safe, no dirty talk or something, just like, hey, I'm offering this service. I think that's, that's something which should be really okay for everybody. Everybody should know that there are people who are earning money by offering sex. So Kink is much more openly presented in Germany than in the States. Like it's I mean, I'm sure just as many people engage in it everywhere in the world. It's just what changes is you know, how, how open are people about, you know, like where the clubs are, are the, the clubs something that people even talk about or advertise, like advertise sex and advertising over here is like such a taboo. And there's often it's, it skews towards uh, censoring female based sexuality where like a lot of more overt things relating to male sexuality get passed. But, um, like female sex toys and, and menstruation products, things like that are not, uh, but kink things definitely are like never, never shown. But when you're talking about the discrimination, like is a lot of it, do you feel it mostly in the online world or it's more like a combination of that? And like, you know, um, perhaps like how your family looks at it and your friends that are outside of your industry. Is it like that? Because if, if so many people are engaging in it, it just, it seems so counterintuitive that, you know, that discrimination is still there culturally. You know what I'm saying? I, I think I get your point. Um, problem is still that I don't have a lot of strong contacts outside of the industry anymore. And there was once a point in my life where I decided I don't want to um, be strongly involved in anything which is kind of, um, yeah, not respecting what I'm doing and what I'm interested in. Right. And so there was a point in my life when I decided, okay, I, I skipped this kind of, of my life. Um, all of my friends, even from the past, they know what I'm doing and they accept this. 
So this is pretty easy. And if you are then going out in these kind of open-minded communities where you find a lot of them in Berlin, um, it's difficult to find people who have a problem with nudity, for example, or um, sex toys or something. Mm -hmm. My mom is very, very conservative about this and we were going step by step. So I know now what she's using and doing and everything, which are details which I generally wouldn't know. But <laughs> Um, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, when you, when you talk, start talking with them, I think it's always important that you start talking with them. And if they see that it's something normal where you can talk like about a, a recipe for lunch or something, then it's like you take off this magic of sex toys and oh my God, that's dirty and naughty. So the people in my environment, they're pretty open about this and I can talk with them. And I definitely have to say that in my experience is majorly an online thing. I would say that America is much more conservative than Germany regarding the history, but this doesn't uh, count for all probably. Like you have in Germany, a lot of people who are very conservative and we have in Germany, this po uh, political parties, which is or like, this, it's a working group. They want to prohibit sex work and they are kind of uh, going over all political parties. So it's not only the conservative party, they are also from the liberal and from the social parties and so on. So uh, you have these movements in Germany, definitely, which are going backwards. Um, but I would say that generally the history was much more open and it's more that now the development is kind of, or the people are probably getting easier access to those things or getting easier contact. So um, yeah. the legislation, though, so um, what is it like there? I mean, do you face any discrimination with um, the government in terms of being gay? Like, has gay marriage been legal for a while? Do you have restrictions on, um, uh, like, getting loans and uh, bank accounts and things like that? Or, like, is that a part of your your experience at all? Or is the discrimination with government mostly with like I know um, like there are designations of sex workers. Like if you were doing escort work, like there's a, a card that you, you get or apply for that you have to carry around, but are there restrictions on like, um, are people allowed to not hire you if they find out that this is part of your background or they can deny you a bank account or they can deny you housing or medical care or like, how does the legislation affect um, the discrimination that is present in, in Germany? Well, I would say that the general acceptance and the legal situation um, would not allow any form of, um, yeah, prohibiting you, for example, a bank account or similar. Um, but in real practice, it sometimes is the case. Um I wouldn't call it directly based on being gay. I never experienced any negative uh, points because of being gay. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm right on the front line. So, for example, I don't want to adopt children or something. Um, I'm with my partner not yet married. We are in a signed relationship, which was like two weeks just before we could have married. But we decided, hey, we are also happy to be in a signed relationship. Um so this was like, yeah, three years ago when they changed it and we didn't need it to be now married because this is just like another description in the, in the passport and I don't think it's that important. But 
I know people who say, oh, this is really important for me because then we can adopt children. And it doesn't say in the passport that you are in a signed relationship, but that you are married. So this might be a point if you travel, for example, to countries where you um, where you have uh, problems with gay marriage uh, or similar. So, but for us, this was never really a big issue. So I wouldn't see their problem. I had once a problem with, for example, opening a bank account. Um, when I was saying what I, what kind of job I'm doing, um, at this time I was selling sex toys and, um, then they said, Oh, you're not a trading company. You are a sex worker and we don't allow sex workers or sexual industries. Right. And I would think like, okay, well, I'm majorly selling products like anyone else. So this was kind of. A discrimination where I felt like this this was strange, and I really fe- felt a little bit weird about this because I know people who are just giving another name about this. They don't say that they are selling sex toys; they say that they are selling whatever massage goods or hygiene articles or something, and then they are allowed to do it. So it's just about how you call the baby. Um, you are allowed or you're not allowed to get an account, and this was kind of giving me really strange feelings. So do you, you know, in working with the collective, so they, they do identify as, you know, they're activists, right? And they, I know they're especially focused on working to change legislation in the states because their efforts are, are based here. Um, but do you consider yourself to be an activist at all? Like, is this the first time um, that you're doing work with a group or an organization or event that's something that's um, about activism or advocacy for sex worker rights? Um, it's not the first time for sex workers. It's also not the first time for gay or queer rights. As I said, for, for gay, it's not a big problem at the moment. I see a lot of problems for queer people, trans people, for sex workers, for a lot of other orientations. So um, I see that there's a lot of work to do, and I'm strongly activist for those things. Die Gesellschaft, this is the event where I also met um, Kyos, was like... Uh, an event which is based on really that that goal to bring that communities together to share information. Um, die Teegesellschaft in English means uh, the tea society. So it has um, the aspect of society, of social, and well, the only thing um, which is kind of hiding is the tea. So this is the group where I'm generally talking with the people about what's going on, what's happening in the world, that we have, for example, problems with um, the sex workers. We had uh, an activity the beginning of um, June where you had like um, put on a hashtag Rotlicht uh, an, which means red light on. Um, so there you posted a picture with a red light and yourself on it just to support this activity as the, for example, the political party, they made an activity red light off, also Rotlicht aus in German. Um, so it's like, yeah, I'm strongly working here with these kind of different communities together. Always the question is like kind of how, where to start, where to go, what's the direction, but I, strongly give a platform for all those people to uh, present their their concepts, their problems. And the community at DT Gesellschaft is really strong about um, 
about the awareness of these problems and supporting them as well. So I often got feedback from my uh, guests joining the Tegesellschaft, how they can support, for example, the sex workers or um, other communities. And well, I try to bring them together and support them. Yeah. Well, I see too, because um, you had sent me information, like a, a bit of a background for you. And one of the things you, it says that you're a coach for BDSM, kink and sexual identity, uh, pet play, pain play, dominant, sub, uh, submissive and similar. So as a coach uh, relating to the sexual identity specifically, like how, how, how does that work exactly? Are you, um, like in a counseling sense or like in a coaching of, of uh, like creating space to explore and encourage acceptance? Like, can you describe what that means in practical terms? Yeah, sure. Um, you already figured out two different directions. The one is giving the people space and room um, to meet like-minded people, to be who they are, how they are, how they feel. Um, this is what I majorly do as an event manager. And I wouldn't call this actually coaching as this is, well, kind of a self-experience with the people. And when I bring there also, for example, talk guests, then they talk about their experiences with a specific background or problem or something, then the people can also reflect themselves, um, find identity, lose identity, so they, they can change a little bit in their own personal development. Um, this is basically the event part. Um, the other part, the coaching part is more like a one-on-one, -on -one, um, yeah, kind of talk round, which I'm not majorly doing for, uh, gender or sexual orientation. Basically there's already some background. I majorly focus here on the kink uh, identity, which is often connected with the, uh, gender or sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is kind of, uh, yeah, this is kind of. You're not necessarily gay, for example, if you like to have sex with men for specific topics or environments. So, um, and this is like kind of, okay, how can I accept this? How can I work with these? And yeah, this is like just a part of, uh, about the other part. As I'm a strong activist in that community, I think, um, yeah, it's really important to keep this always in mind and join this, but most of the people already know where they are. But it's sometimes interesting how they, they change during the time. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about your own personal history? Like, I mean, because it, it would seem from the outside, somebody like yourself that's involved in these um, these actions that you then, it kind of is an indication that you have a, a very strong sense of self. So, I mean, did you grow up feeling accepting of yourself did you know early on you know that you were gay did you ever feel ashamed of it or were made to feel ashamed of it like how how did your experience and your identity develop and start and and maybe evolve or not evolve like maybe you've been you've felt as you feel now for a long time so let's probably start then from the beginning i was grown up in a more small village more conservative with less um, contact points to being gay, kinky, or similar. Mm. So um, I would call myself the outsider in that uh, community. I didn't have the feeling that I'm part of this um, yeah, crowd, of the class crowd. Um, so yeah, just got the feeling that I'm kind of different. Didn't, didn't really knew what was wrong with me, but I felt like, oh, it's just different. 
Um, then over the time, I realized uh, I got some access point to kind of kink from different environments, but I had a girlfriend or I thought I had a girlfriend. Um, so I, I tried a lot and it really took a while until I accepted this for me. Then there was like this tipping point where I said, when I was 19, I no, 18, 18, when I decided, okay, I now have to drive to, to the next big city and go there in a gay bar and find kind of, uh, yeah, my, my network, my identity, whatever. It then took a while to kind of find my, um, my, yeah, my steps there, but was very quick compared to all the things before. And I also very quick, like probably half a year later, had my first time of BDSM sex. So first time sex and first time BDSM was like within, yeah, six months, 12 months, something like this. So very, very quick. And it, yeah, then kind of popped out. Okay. Now I, I found where I was. But before I was definitely aware that I was different. Like when I was, for example, walking on, on the street to some of my classmates was like, uh, you, you walk like a woman. And I felt like, oh my God, I don't want to walk like a woman. I think this is negative. And today I feel like, hey, I can walk like a woman. I don't care about this. I mean, I don't walk like a woman anymore because, well, I don't have this attitude how I had in the past. But in the past it was negative. And now I feel like, well, I can walk like a woman whenever I want to walk like a woman. Right. And this is just like, you need this step. And this is like a so far development when I got like the first step this breaking out then I kind of developed that I'm different, the identity, all the things around. And then there was for me the missing part with the learning kink, learning these kind of um, kink experiences, kink handling, rope arts, how you want to call it. This is nothing you, I, I was kind of learning by school or just somewhere in TV. I, in Germany, we have TV, um, like education series uh, when I was younger um, and they were kind of showing you a little bit this world like hey there's a domina there's a dungeon studio and so on and so but it was really hard for me at this time to to find places where I could learn something about this internet wasn't that strong at that point and so yeah it really took some time for me to build all these things up and then I found a mentor and he was kind of really pushing my development in that direction. And I lived with him together. Like we, we had a shared flat for half a year and he had a dungeon in his basement and there was also a slave he had. And we were then playing together with a slave. And this was like, I learned so much and this really forward my development so strong. And yeah, then after a while I kind of, well, got into, I call it the serious business. I was working as business consulting, my studies, uh, I made my master degrees and finished them, my studies, worked in the industry and so on. And till that point, the whole kink was more like my, my private thing. And then there was this day when I felt like, mm, I think I should do something in, with my life with more sense. Probably, you know, this point in your life where you feel like, oh, this is like the wrong way. <laughs> and then I decided, okay. I want to do something useful with my life and I want to give other people this uh, capability in developing their sex sexuality. Um, yeah, maybe faster, maybe easier, maybe on an earlier stage of their life, whenever they feel like when I do it, also if they are older, it doesn't matter. But when you are ready to it, you should have the chance to really develop yourself. And 
yeah, so this is why I came up now with all these classes, with these events. Um, I'm giving a lot of coaching lessons about pain play or similar bondage as like one of my majors. Um, I am giving now online bondage classes and all these things. And, and here I really feel, okay, this is like something really useful. I teach the people something they want to know, which is good to spread because, well, there wasn't a lot of options to spread it in the past. Now you can do it. And this, yeah, this is just like a really, really good feeling uh, to see the happy faces of the people afterwards. So, yeah, that's kind of my background. So when you talk about the first time you had sex and then six months later, you had your first like BDSM encounter. So how, how did that come up? Was it something that um, the person that you were with introduced it or like it was something that you pursued? I probably had my first naughty dreams with maybe nine or ten. So this is the age before my, uh, I don't know how to say this in English, pubertad, is it in German? Like when you start to become your gender? Um, puberty? Puberty, yes, exactly. This was the word, thanks. So this was kind of the beginning of my puberty and I was having these kind of naughty dreams which were more based on BDSM than on being gay, which was very interesting. Um, so I first had these kind of kink feeling and the gender actually didn't really matter. And it then came up in my puberty that, well, I was orientated to the man and, well, then all the orientation skipped to man and then actually I kind of, well, normal sex versus kinky sex and this time was more focused on normal sex but i still had these kind of kinky uh, yeah dreams and mm -hmm. ideas from the from the time before and they still were there but they didn't pop up like uh, all the time um the availability uh, of porn in the internet at this time was like i mean it was very just could load pictures but this was like already so great such a good help um <laughs> This was really helping me then to, to identify my, my gay identity. And then I was, I, I didn't found kink porn at this time, or not a lot of kink porn at this time. I knew it was already there, but I wasn't that experienced how to find it. And uh, yeah, then when I kind of became older, like with my 18th, I was then with this day when I went there, um, when I decided for myself, okay, now I have to start my gay life. Um, I mean, you, you had this break and you had this coming out for yourself. Now you do it. You have to make this step. And if you do this one step, the next step is so much easier. Just the first <laughs> step is like really difficult. Right. And so, yeah, and then I was like, yeah, but I want to do this and that and that and that and that. And I want to experience that and that. Um, so actually it was really difficult for me to find a fitting partner because at this time I was uh, 19. I was kind of uh thin cute looking kind of soft uh boyish type and i already at these days saw myself as a master so it was kind of difficult for a lot of people to see this cute boyish looking guy as a master and that he can be dominant and i mean i was not that experienced so i was not that 100 sure what to do and it's much well, I mean, this is like a strong part of being being a good master or a good dom in this case, that you know what to do. 
And I was experimentating and insecure about what to do. I had my ideas, but I wasn't really sure how to make them real. And so it was really, really difficult to find the first um, BDSM partners for me. And it was very interesting. It was generally a person who was older than me and a person who was generally dominant, but was kind of accepting me as a dom because I looked so cute. <laughs> and it was so much fun to really dominate those guys. And they were all kind of shocked when they realized that I'm not that cute. <laughs> That's funny. It's it's I I relate a lot to what you're saying because um like I identify it as you know pure switch, but the people that inspire me to be dominant are dominant themselves. So it's just funny to hear that your your first instance like you identified as being dominant, but you wound up exploring this in a situation with people that were dominant instead of like people that, you know, would have made it easy, like a, like a clear submissive. Um, yeah. But I find that challenge is kind of more inspiring now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, this is, this is kind of the game. Like, like you like to play with it. And especially if you're a dom, I mean, as a switch, it's probably even more interesting. Sometimes I'm really jealous about switches, by the way. Um that you try to fight for, for the position and that you try to convince or depending to what's your kind of superpower in that case, <laughs> it was looking cute and innocent <laughs> and having the superpower looking cute and innocent gave me the power to bound the guys to the bed, whip them, spank them, torture them, lick them, lick whatever I wanted them to, to lick and whatever shit. So this was like so much fun. And <laughs> yeah. It's, but yeah, after a while it also lost its, um, it lost its magic. And then I decided, no, I, I want to become stronger. And now I prefer the physical domination compared to the looking cute domination. But it's, well, you need some time to build up muscles and strength. <laughs> right. So can you tell me a bit more about these, um, the televised educational programs that you saw? In television or what do you mean? Well, you, you mentioned that, you know, like, um, like one of the ways that you kind of learned or were introduced to these kink and BDSM things that there was a, an educational series on TV. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, there were yeah. two of them. One was called Wahre Liebe and the other one Liebe Sünde. Wahre Liebe means true love and the other love, uh, lovely sin kind of, um, they were both, I would call them semi-educational um, reportage-style um, programs. Um, at those days, I think they had like really an educational level for the society at that point, as you didn't have this whole online education opportunity or learn something online. And they really, uh, it was like a mixed format where you had kind of, uh, one was, I think, even a trans um, doing the the show. The other one was like kind of a woman at this time. She was like semi-famous. Um, and yeah, they were kind of leading through the night and then, oh, this is like a dungeon in Hamburg. This is that. This is the sex dolls, uh, so-and-so. And this was kind of, they were just talking about sex and just because they were talking about sex, that actually didn't matter what it was. I was always happy about BDSM, but it was even good if they were just there and you were just, oh, it's interesting. It's 
something you generally don't talk with your family about or anyone in the school about or something. And in those days, it was so good to, to have these, yeah, just to talk about this topic. This was a really, really good feeling and an important step for me. And you also had a magazine called Bravo, which was majorly made for, for teenagers. And there were always like a naked man and a naked woman inside. So it was like a self picture and they just made a picture of themselves naked in front of a camera. So that, yeah, the people overcome their shyness and yeah, that they say, Hey, being naked is okay. Having sexuality is okay. And I think those are very, were very important steps in those days for my development. Yeah. Um, so the the programs though were um were they geared towards you know children adults anybody because over here we have a lot of age restrictions on sexual content is it the case over there or this was presented literally as education for all ages like the the Bravo the magazine stuff for example they were really targeted for younger and there was a Dr Summer team inside so this was like really targeted even for younger people. Um, all, the TV series, they generally started, I think, around 10, 30, 11. Um, but I think over the years, they, they even started at nine or something. So they became earlier. And this wasn't that uh, age restricted. And I mean, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of children, they just watched it when their parents were not at home or even with their parents together. So I think the good point was that the parents could decide if their children allowed to watch it or not and it was not restricted by government or something so it was a really yeah. personal decision so is if your family very open about sex were they the kind of parents that um like they encouraged you to watch things like that did they know that you were watching things like that did they talk about sex with you how did you grow up like in the in the family in regards to sex what was that like no i didn't get a lot of education about sex for my family um, I would say maybe they made this typical talk. We have to talk about something. But when we were talking about this, I think I already knew everything, what she were telling everything that mom, that's boring. Um, and at this stage, I probably wanted to talk more about BDSM and all these things, but well, my mom, she didn't talk about them. And if I look at the amount of partners of my mom, I don't think she... I think I overcame her like maybe 10 times, 100 times, something like this. I don't know. Um, so, no, this is definitely not a not an education I received from my family. Yeah. Um, with my dad, I think I didn't talk about it at all. So this was something I really had to learn by myself. And I had the opportunities, the TV, the, the magazines, all these things available uh, later on the Internet. They were really useful for this. And they helped me a lot. So, yeah, it was most self-learning. The things that you're describing and the, and the way that you talk about it. Um, so I'm very pro-porn, and I, I really think that there's a lot of backlash against porn in the States, especially as, as it relates to children using porn as education. But my thought is that if we actually expanded pornography and really you know, explored the opportunity to use pornography as education, you know, like it's not, you, you have your entertainment porn, but then also doing porn that's, that's meant to be educational. Like the way that you're, you're talking about how helpful it was for you to learn about these things. And I'm sure, um, 
the way that you came across it and, and perhaps the openness with which these things were available, like that normalized it for you. And when, you know, things are presented in that way that it is accessible and it's open and perhaps it's not the topic of common conversation, but just its very existence and it not being this hidden thing, like really allows you to be more accepting if it's something that you identify with, if it's something that turns you on. So it's, it's validating to my own theories over here about possibilities with porn specifically, you know, so it's really fascinating to hear you talk about, especially this magazine that's geared towards teenagers. That's fascinating to hear about. It's interesting. When you talk about this, I would say it's definitely helpful, but I would strongly separate, for example, porn from education. Um, Like when you have porn, it's a lot about fantasies and I don't expect the porn to be realistical. If I want to have the educational part, I would like to know, is this realistical? Is this consensual? How can I do this in, in, in real life? And I think this kind of education is strongly needed. And even if you if, if a country prohibits like whatever porn, for example, um, or really strong regulated, the other part must be kind of legal and should be spread widely because Anything else would lead to um, abuses, uh, rapes, all these negative things you have with sex, um, because this is what the people, the porn is existing in their minds. And if they only see the porn and not the knowledge behind, like what's really shown there, um, then I think the people tend, tend to see, oh, then this is acceptance. Like, for example, violence, let's make it very stupid. Uh, violence against women. I think this is a topic which a lot of people uh, know. I'm not that strong familiar with it, to be honest, but I understand it from the social aspect and we can all say that this is not good. And you see a lot of porn where this is the case. And I know a lot of women and men who enjoy watching this porn, especially the women. I don't know a lot of men who enjoy watching this porn because they are often feeling, oh, this is not good. But I know some women who say, oh yeah, this is like really a hot fantasy. But it's just a fantasy. Right. And I, I could never respect the man who is doing this in life. And the man is like, oh, is this now acceptable behavior? No, it's fucking not. And this is like the point. That if, if, you, if you just see the porn of this hot rape fantasy, um, maybe, maybe both would enjoy it. But if this is the only educational part on this point, um, I think that the, that the people are then losing the reality. And so it must be really clear that porn is something for the fantasy, for jerking off at home alone or with your wife, your man, whatever. You can live this fantasy or like dirty storytelling in the bedroom or something. Fantastic. Therefore, porn is correct. Um, but for education, I think porn has risks as porn is only fantasy and not really facing or not often facing the reality so I would see that the sex education should be separated from the porn. Hmm. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I didn't mean that uh, porn as it is should serve as education. I meant that oh, okay. yeah. uh, like the way that you were describing the, the television series and, and that magazine, like you're talking about information that's very honest, right? It's It's 
literally people uh, exploring these things. It's not, it's not presenting it in a fantasy way, and it still serves to be educational. But in the States, we don't really have a lot of things like that. And if we do, they're they're hidden. They're they're restricted with age. Like the information that we give children, the sex education that is available when it is part of a school or part of, you know, an, an outside program. It's very vague. Mm. So in taking the same uncensored approach to like actually showing people have sex, like when I say pornography, I, I really mean in a sense of just like not censoring and actually showing what's really going on, showing literal activity instead of, you know, showing somebody put a condom on a banana. Like that's not really helpful. You know what I mean? Putting a a condom on an actual penis and a woman's vagina actually menstruating and intercourse between multiple people and intercourse between different sexes and the actual anatomy of a trans person. Like doing this, an uncensored way, I think could be really helpful. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also 100% with you, especially if you go with the um, educational part um, in, in the way of showing explicit material. I think this is really, really helpful. Um, for me, as a, when I was young, I was really shy and I didn't, I mean, I'm still not a sexual exhibitionist. So, I mean, I'm performing on stage or whatever. So in this way, I'm an ex- uh, exhibitionist. But if it goes to being naked, I don't feel comfortable, for example, being naked in front of others. Um, and I think and uh, it took me a long time until I saw a lot of naked people um, to accept, oh, it's okay to be naked. Right. And so I think this is really useful to, to I mean, if you get undressed in front of your, yeah, your first lover, um maybe you don't you shouldn't be too shy about it maybe you're already nervous about what's going on the next steps and if you then have no idea what's going on um it's even worse and if you're then shy about yourself mm. so if you get there more openness that's definitely a plus i think this is absolutely necessary and it will um i, I think that on the other side this um how to call it provocative like being sexy in public. I think this is something which is in that case, then more dangerous even sometimes as it's kind of playing with the fantasy. And you know that often playing with the fantasy is more interesting than having someone naked in front of you. <laughs> yes. Yes. And if you play that very strong with that fantasy, um, I think that this is sometimes more, more, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it risky because I don't want to go in the direction of being sexy is uh, you're the one who is responsible for it. But um, I think if you have people who are uneducated, who never saw a naked person, and then they see some kind of sexy persons in front of them, for them it's like porn. Hmm. And I think this is then they don't have this right understanding about what's behind it, what, what's going on. And I don't know even if they can handle that situation um, probably afterwards because they're uneducated. So, yeah, that's and, and then this leads to the next step and to the next step. And in the end, we all should stay like in full rubber dressed. Oh, no, rubber was fetish. Fuck. Um, okay. <laughs> so the, the things that you do professionally, I'm imagining those are things that are personal interests of 
yours? Like, are you, you enjoy the puppy play and pain play and, and things like that? Or are these things that you explore purely professionally? Um, for example, the pain play is something I majorly do privately. Um, the puppy play I just came to because of my husband. Before I was kind of, nah, puppy play, nah, come on, that's, that's stupid. And <laughs> then I started with my husband and he's like, yeah, come, let's try it. Let's throw it here and there. And actually now I'm a handler of a, of a small pack and uh, having some puppies with whom I'm playing frequently, also on a completely asexual basis. Well, sometimes sexual, some, sometimes asexual. But it's really like I'm also doing now this kind of puppy play and also enjoying this kind of puppy play, which I didn't enjoy in the past that much. So I definitely made a, a big step in that direction. There are still things where I wouldn't call myself an expert and I'm not teaching them. Um, but pretty much, like, for example, fisting is is a part where I'm, I'm privately not that strong into i like it but it's i don't have always the fitting partner and then it needs a lot of time to prepare everything and i wouldn't call myself experienced enough to um yeah sometimes even to do it if i'm having a very experienced partner i'm happy to to fist him but until that point i'm feeling like mm, okay i if you're not that experienced we can try a little bit but i wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't go too far or something. So, so do you identify like a purely homosexual, or do you feel like you're on a spectrum where you know, like, are you open to trans partners? Do you ever play with women? Like, how how do you identify in that sense? Um, I was trying once or twice with women, um, which completely didn't give me any turn on. Um, I once had a crush on a, a tomboy. So like a woman, and she was dressed like a man and uh, actually a really cute man. So I was kind of, ooh, I'm having a crush, but um, nope. Next to those two experiences, I never had any um, sexual contacts with women. I wouldn't exclude it generally, but I love balls in my hands. So if there is somebody who is having balls and a dick and I can squeeze them, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> But I never had it. So I, this experience is still open for me. Gotcha. Um, because you are the first person that I've gotten to speak to that, that has uh, this experience with puppy play. Can you describe like some examples of the asexual play and the sexual play? Um, there's something called dog play, which is more coming out of a BDSM old leather community scene, which is very sexual orientated. And the end of the last century, there was also like a more younger community popping up with people more having the playful side of a dog, like a puppy, like a young dog. And they tended to not having sex, but more, well, still can have sex. It's not excluded, but it's not the main focus. It's more about getting your headspace into this, like... I'm a puppy, I'm cute, I fetch the ball, I want to have a cookie, uh, I'm cute, love me, cuddle me. So there's a lot of completely other framework around and less this kind of sexual slave. Like the original dog play, we had like kind of master, slave, and under the slave came the dog. 
Right. And uh, with a puppy, it's like, oh, the puppy sleeps in the bed. Oh, the puppy is like kind of uh, teasing you and dissing you. And it's like not the submissive one. It's like somebody who's pushing you. And okay. this community is now also having only top, only active puppies inside. And they are then the alpha of a pack. And they dominate, for example, the other um, puppies in the pack, like the beta, the Zeta, the Omega, and so on. So this is like a big complex structure now. And yeah, this is like your own completely new community. Just given what you said about like being this dominant person and like this is the role that you prefer. So in your own relationship, I assume that you're playing the alpha dog? Actually, I'm playing the handler, but we were talking about if I'm an alpha dog, but as I'm generally not on all fours, as I stay more outside of the of the pack, I let the others play and I cuddle them and everything. And I do it a little bit like my, my dad does. He's also having a dog and he's, uh, well, cuddling with his dog in the bed and sometimes biting his dog. He learned that having the dog language is kind of useful to teach the dog good behavior. So I try to, I'm the handler and doing the dog language to teach my dogs a good behavior. Gotcha. So you don't, are you in leather? Do you have a, a gear that you wear to do this? Or it, it's really like the hand, the pack that you're handling, they're dressed a certain way, but you're dressed as you like? I don't, I don't have any specific gear for that, uh, for being a handler, for being a rope artist, whatever. I don't need any specific gear. I feel this way when I'm myself. And so I generally don't change it. So your event for the this marathon virtual event that the Black Sex Worker Collective is hosting, you're doing an intro to bondage, correct? Yes, correct. Can you talk a bit about your event, what it's going to be, what's going to be covered, and, and just give us a more detailed description of it? Yeah, sure. I'm a bondage teacher for now almost 10 years. Um I gave already before uh, bondage classes and I well started to learn bondage when I was 19, very slow these days. And now I think, yeah, when Corona started, I had to, but already one year before I was starting to kind of do a little bit online bondage classes with video tutorials and these kind of things. And Corona, well, they gave me the time to focus on that project. So since when I started to give online bondage classes and I figured it out that it all works so well because you can even use the first person view, which is something you can't offer your, your class members when you are um, doing a bondage class. You can't see with the eyes of me, but when I'm doing an online bondage class. For example, you can see with the eyes of me. I'm focusing on safety simplicity and uh, well that is sexy in the end so useful and <laughs> yeah it's like i'm not doing the perfect shibari uh, stuff because then i have to go with you like 10 hours only repeating some basic knots so i want you to to learn something to work with the rope directly afterwards use it in your next sex session or something so it's like i, I really want you to to work with the rope and start uh, enjoying the, the whole kinkiness of bondage. And that's what you're going to learn. You will have uh, safety uh, instructions in the beginning, which is always uh, necessary, especially in online. And then we go through some basic knots. So just basic techniques you need for a lot of bondages. 
um, I'm, I'm teaching you a self-bondage in this case. And with that bondage, uh, you can tie yourself or you can tie a partner. So you can even join if you don't have a partner. And I think that this is very important that you have something where you can practice by yourself because you need the finger feeling for the ropes. And this you can practice with yourself, with your body. You feel when there's a pressure point, you feel when you, some rope is too tight or something. And this is experience you really need in both ways, if you are a dom or a sub. And if you start learning bondage, then this is like the, the stuff you have to learn. Gotcha. So your event is going to be one hour total or it's a little longer? No, it was scheduled on one hour total. Um, I have to see, maybe we can go a little bit further, but as I know, there's the next event afterwards already scheduled. So I think I have to be just very, very precise and fast and make everything a little bit shorter. But I mean, if the people are interested, I'm giving an online bondage class um, weekly. At the moment, it's Thursdays, but it's in German. But we're going to start also English classes probably on Wednesday. Um, so it's, yeah, you just need some room, you need some ropes and you can join. So this is so cool and so easy and so effective. I really hope well that this event will become successful and that we collect here a lot of uh, money. And yeah, I think that maybe this whole thing will also lead to bring the full uh, community a little bit together um, because we are now having people from all over the world. And I think this is so great. We have a chance now to get closer, to kind of collaborate. And as probably internet is prohibiting some of our events, it's like if they are kind of working against us, then probably we should all join together and, well, work for us. So I think this is the, the most important thing we can do and support each other. And yeah, so that's why I'm hoping that we're getting a big, great project there together. I agree. I hope it is very successful and, and, you know, that your practice just grows from there. Dan, thank you so much for taking this time. So much great information. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks that I make it right now. Brienne? Brienne. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dan. Take care. Awesome. Goodbye. See ya. Okay, so check out the episode notes for today's show. I've included a link so that you can buy tickets to this event on the 22nd. The tickets are available on Eventbrite. And just so you know, it's a different ticket for every component of the event. So it's one ticket for Dan's class, another ticket for all of the other events. You know, this is a good cause. So buy multiple tickets, spread the word, do what you can. Uh, there are also going to be links in the episode notes so that you can find out more about the collective and about sex worker rights and also information about our guest today. So you can find out more about the classes that he teaches online and the events that he hosts in Berlin. And yeah, until next week, I wish you well. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the show, visit us online at sexcompod.com. That's S-E-X-C-O-M-P-O-D.com. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please email me at sexcompod at gmail.com. I am always looking for new sex audio and people to interview. It could be you.